Hello and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where we look at small moments in great movies. My name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And this week we're going to be looking at movies from the early 1930s, which is the furthest back era that we have done thus far. Nice. Feels good to be uh, just inching our way further back. (laughs) Uh, seeing how far we can push things before the listener base is like enough (laughs) yeah the 30s episodes are definitely not our most popular ones but i can't imagine why um (laughs) the 30s are an interesting decade though in terms of like film because in some ways it is like the most classic hollywood of classic hollywood film periods because it's like it's before the war really sets in uh it's uh, certainly in in America, it's the uh, control of the studio system and the sort of efficient factory system for making movies, uh, the christening of the next sort of generation of movie stars and really star directors that would go on for many years to come. And you've got the uh, figuring out of sound film, because yeah. I think and this will be interesting to see how much this reflects in our picks, but you can certainly watch a lot of films from the late 20s, early 30s, where it's either there's clearly a struggle with the technology and the myriad of issues that come with that, some of which are technological, some of which are just artistic and what sound does to change the nature of filmmaking and how directors now approach uh, crafting a scene. Um, but I actually think looking at our our picks that we've got a a crop of early 30s films, but ones that were already pretty adept at addressing those challenges. Um, Yeah, because you can definitely see some raw films, like films that feel like they are definitely at the forefront of of everything mm -hmm. that's new. Uh, I would say that there's maybe a couple in our picks today that are kind of along those lines, but... Well, one of my picks is very much chosen for existing at this sort of cross-section of film history but but we will get to that but uh it's an interesting era in film i think it's one that there's definitely a uh a certain coalition of film fan view this is like the golden age this is the Mm. best hollywood cinema ever has been um i don't would not put myself in that company but i do like a lot of films from this period uh to the point that like it's we've talked about the early 30s before on the show outside of the context of it being the framework. So right. that's a good indicator that, uh, I don't know, the quality of the films and the period we're looking at, I think. For sure. But there's definitely some growing pains. Like if you were to immerse yourself in these types of films, you would you'd mm-hmm. certainly notice that. You certainly notice it when you watch the first sound best picture winner, the Broadway melody, and it's like musical, which makes sense that the first sound best picture winner would be one because it just inherently is a genre that needs that technology to exist but it's also like uh it's they don't quite have the they certainly don't have the visual panache that later musicals would have because it's just enough just like wowee people are singing and dancing on a stage we don't have to do anything else but there's also just like the the quality of the sound is not very good certainly by modern standards and the way dialogue scenes are shot are very flat and uninteresting as are the conversations themselves because Hey, it's enough that they're talking. Who cares what it's about? Yeah. Um, 
admittedly it's been a a bit of a while since i've seen that film so maybe it holds up better than giving it credit for but that was certainly my impression of it and even great films from the period like i love the marx brothers but i think in their comedies you can see a clear delineation between like the verbal comedy scenes and the physical comedy scenes and when they they start talking it's like cameras locked down flat angle just let them go and it works because the the characters and the dialogue are enough you don't need fancy camera work to accentuate it but unlike sort of later comedies in the towards the end of the decade the screwball films where visual and audio kind of mix and match a bit more in the early years it's like all right you got your talking jokes and you got your camera jokes yeah keep them over here and over away from each other well even within like the work of the marx brothers themselves you can see you can see them growing as they're learning because their first two movies are pretty tough to watch now. <laughs> like they're, they're definitely like, Hey, we used to do this on stage and now let's just put a camera in front of us. And it feels like that. But once they get to like horse feathers and duck soup, then they figured it out mostly. And yeah, it works. Yeah. That's a good point too. Um, we should probably address, we've been away for a while because uh, you've been uh, just loving life. Yeah, yeah, I went on a big trip uh, out east, out on the Canadian East Coast, nice. uh, which was really good and really nice weather. And yeah, the Not sea was hot. everywhere. <laughs> Some days it was pretty hot. Like I got burnt pretty bad. Yeah. I yeah became one of the lobsters I was eating. I mean, that's uh, that's Cronenbergian, I would say. <laughs> uh, the, the greatest Canadian hero of all him and Bret Hart. Um, are you happy to be home? Quite. Yeah. There was a lot of driving and a lot of, a lot of walking and a lot of spending money. <laughs> so <laughs> you need a break from that after a while. That's for it's sure. It's true. Yeah. Whether you yeah. want it or not. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I just, my partner and I spent like two days visiting her family and it was a nice little vacation, but even just two days, I'm like, Oh, home. <laughs> it is a relief. Nice to be home. Yeah. So yeah. back to you, the listener. That's where we really want to be. That's right. <laughs> yeah, so it has been a while for us. And I mean, it's been longer for us than it has for the audience even because, mm-hmm. I mean, we had some, we knew that was coming up when we were banking some episodes, but it's been a while. So if we're rusty, we're sorry. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we <laughs> um, we lost all our charisma and uh, chemistry with each other. It, it really <laughs> didn't take long. It took so long to build and then just immediately evaporated. A couple weeks and it's gone. Yeah. yeah, that's uh that's life for you though. True. Um well I'll uh I'll jump us into 1932 with Scarface, sometimes subtitled Scarface the Shame of a Nation. A truly hilarious subtitle, <laughs> but maybe we'll get to that later. I don't know. But um I knew I actually just I didn't realize we were gonna do this as a topic, but for whatever reason, a couple weeks ago, I'm like, I want to rewatch the 30 Scarface because it's been a long time. Um, and I remember liking that one a lot, even when I was young and didn't quite have as much, you know, of a, of the grammar for early thirties movies. And sure enough, rewatching it, I loved it even more than I remembered. Um, and something that really stood out to me is how Tony Camonte as played by Paul Muni is comparable to your gangsters in little Caesar and the public enemy played by Edward G. Robinson and James Cagney, respectively, you know, he more or less follows the same basic archetype and arc in the story but 
there's a major distinction between him and them that I think really separates these films um, that comes out in my moment, which is this very sort of uh, pivotal moment where Tony is uh, out with uh, his boss's main squeeze, love interest, mistress, lady, out uh, whining and dining her, and a rival gang drives by and starts firing Tommy guns through the window. And in the scene, instead of being fearful, Tony is like exhilarated of like, they got machine guns you can carry. He's so excited by that prospect. And his uh, his right-hand man shoots one of the guys who's driving by, drops his gun, runs out and picks it up, brings it to Tony. And Tony is just like holding this thing in his hand of like, little enough you can carry. And then that proceeds into the next scene of him meeting with his boss and the boss being like, I told you to lay off the east side, Tony. We don't need that heat. And Tony being like, hey, we got this gun. We'll kill them all. <laughs> and what I really like is specifically the sort of the attachment to the machine gun and to the Tommy gun is like this weapon that can completely bowl over Tony's enemies because the distinction I think that exists between Tony and your little Caesars and public enemies is that those characters had a certain grandeur and ambition. I mean, little Caesars name is suggestive of as much James Cagney's public enemy. He's like this bully and he's quite, you know, uh, cruel in his actions. He's not a sympathetic character, but there's a certain uh, grandeur and ambition to his seeing him as like a kid and his goals to like run the city and the tragedy of that falling apart. But Tony, we meet, you know, already an adult, already working for these these gangsters. And yeah, he technically also has ambition to move up, but he's not this tactical person. He's not this schemer. He doesn't necessarily uh, want to have this control or power. He's just this thug. He's dumb, abrasive, and a bully. And what really allows him to bowl over his enemies is not so much that he outthinks them or that he's a brilliant tactician or that he's a Michael Corleone-esque, uh, you know, Machiavellian power broker. It's that he's a dumb, tough guy who gets his hands on a really good gun that can kill a lot of people. And I think that really is an interesting way of characterizing the film and this character. And especially thinking about the subtitle I mentioned, The Shame of a Nation, the film comes out, technically it's a pre-code film, which the code still exists for censorship, but it's applied more in the general spirit of things and this idea of compensating moral values. As long as you have certain signposts to show that the bad stuff is bad and wrong, then your movie can get away with a lot more than films would be able to a couple of years after. And Scarface has those. It has the, again, occasionally released another title, The Shame of a Nation. It has these title cards at the beginning that are, about like this film is an indictment of this great problem plaguing our great nation of gang violence and what is the government gonna do about it what are you gonna do about it and i'm watching it at home like me uh not much because uh i wasn't born yet but it has these very overt like uh didactic uh sort of framing to show that tony's a bad guy and you shouldn't have fun with that but i think the film actually is smarter about doing it within its text itself, that there's a fun in watching Tony uh, cause mayhem and chaos throughout the city. And there's that the appeal of the gangster film is still there, but the film never forgets that he is not necessarily, he's not, he's not smart. He's not a tactician. He's not, uh, he's not classy. He's a, he's a thug in a suit and it's only via weapons that allow him to cause this chaos in the first place. And I think it's a, uh, pretty intelligent way of handling that and uh, sort of responsibly, I suppose, if we want to put it in that language, presenting an amoral character 
and having fun with that amoral character, but not losing sight of um, his villainy either. Nice. Uh, that's a good pick. I have not seen this, I'll be honest, but I did check out the scene you were talking about and a few things did stand out to me. Um, a, I thought it was pretty funny, <laughs> the fact mm-hmm. that they're getting shot up and he's like, oh, check out those guns. He sees it as like a business opportunity for him and that's all he can really see. Um, but there's also it also speaks to his arrogance, the fact that, oh, now that we have, if we have these guns, we can take care of everybody, all of our enemies. Like, but your enemies are currently shooting at you with those guns. So like, mm-hmm. he's like, well, the fact, it, it doesn't matter if they have them, if we have them, think of the things we could do with them. Is There's a certain arrogance to that too. Absolutely. Uh, which, I, which I thought was pretty hilarious. Yeah, and the short-sightedness of it, of, uh, you know, like, you're also vulnerable to these things. Like, you know, to quote a recent new release, until someone builds a bigger bomb, you know, (laughs) until someone builds a faster machine gun, which, sure enough, spoiler alert, at the end of the film, Tony is shot down by the police who shoot him down with a Tommy gun. (laughs) Like, that's, and that's something else that's interesting, is, like, there's, the film walks this interesting line where, it is in some ways it's you can read this as being very critical of these weapons that like this destructive power they have uh to cause mayhem and both you know uh as as a tool for criminals to wreak havoc but also as a tool for police to brutally silence um lawbreakers and i i think it's it's uh, very telling that and the film doesn't draw too uh, great a point in comparison but that tony is shot down at the end by the same weapon he's been using to to wreak havoc um it's a quietly subversive detail that i think is easy to overlook but um at the same time the film is also mesmerized with those guns it loves machine guns it has so much fun creating interesting visuals and and uh innovative set pieces through those machine guns one of the other something that i almost made my moment for this week is a transitional device that's used before this where to uh suggest the gang warfare that's occurring uh, there's a shot of one of those sort of old school like calendars where it's like the just the month and the day and it's one page and you tear it off each day. There's one of those and there's an overlay of a Tommy gun barrel and the gun starts firing and the pages start firing off like rapidly. Um, That's pretty sweet. As if they're being it's it's pretty awesome. And the reason I didn't make it my moment is because I had little to say about it other than it's the most awesomest thing. Um, <laughs> but it's like it is this really like exciting and intoxicating way to show time passing and suggest violence without showing it and it clearly is showing a certain level of fun to be had with this or like later on when it's all done in shadow but we get a version of the real life saint valentine's day massacre where tony and his boys line up a bunch of gangsters and shoot them all in the back with tommy guns and it's all shadow but that that great sound that cackle of a machine gun the the shadow of the bodies flying like there's a lot of clear enjoyment coming from this and i think it speaks to that like that very bizarre place that guns hold in culture in general but also really specifically in american culture where there is this great sort of fear and disgust and uh uh just hostility towards them for obvious reasons but there's also this weird fetishistic obsession and uh uh pleasure with them too and i think the film does a really good job expressing that without ever it being what the film is explicitly about well the other thing too is that this is such an iconic like 
pairing with a weapon, especially if you look back on it after all those years since, like gangsters and Tommy guns. That's mm-hmm. like a samurai with its katana blade or a Jedi with its lightsaber. Like that's just a iconic pairing of a person and their weapon. But how much did these early movies like this and like Little Caesar have to do with that, right? Like how much did these films put that image in our mind? I mean, obviously the, the real gangsters did use them, yes, but we have this picture of them using them like forever ingrained in us that probably comes from these very early movies too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I uh, obviously... Uh, or maybe it's not obvious, but Scarface wasn't the first movie to create that, have that visual, but it certainly leans on it and emphasizes it a lot. And it's also a lot of the posters for the film lean on that imagery. So it is uh, seminal in crafting that enduring image. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, and I like that you bring up the humor of the scene too, because it is, it's directed by Howard Hawks and no surprise that he would go on to be the great director of so many great comedies um yeah. so yeah it's a good scene i like how you tied it into the the idea of the pre-code too um yeah because that's i mean you're definitely more of an expert on the pre-code than i or most of us are but uh so this is what 32 32 yeah. pre-code ends between 33 and 34 that's okay. when the production code administration is formed in part because of pressure from uh, Catholic groups who felt that the code wasn't working as it was intended and they weren't wrong. Uh, and then it started being enforced with much more uh, teeth and diligence. And before it was like, well, as long as you appeal to the overall sort of um, tone of the code, like even right. if you're not following the rules to the letter, if the overall spirit is preserved, we'll let you get away with stuff. And after 34, it was like, nope you will follow these rules to the letter and not to say, I mean, there's certainly films that bent and broke them still in various ways. Uh, and then there's also the complications and I'm not an expert in like the sort of main code era years, but I know during the war, for example, because of propaganda efforts, there was, if things were being broken in the name of that, that was more permissible. Right. Um, so all that to say, like, in, in terms of just giving some context for what that looks like and what that change is, um, that's kind of the historical factors behind that. So a film like Star like Scarface would still want to appease yes. in some form. Yeah, and it was still, and I'm not, uh, I haven't looked into this too deeply, but it still faced tons of local state censorship. There was plenty of states that refused to play it or made their own cuts. Right. There were efforts to recut the film and reshoot stuff. And then I believe uh, Hawks and the producer, Howard Hughes, uh, eventually just released it as they intended. But that's why it's got the Shame of a Nation subtitle in some prints. That's why it's got the those very kind of silly uh, title cards at the beginning asking what you're going to do to solve gang violence, <laughs> which is like <laughs> Joe Plo moviegoer, like, hey, what are you doing about Al Capone, huh? Get off your ass and take him down. Anyway, um... And then you also have, I haven't, I only watched a part of this movie. I haven't uh, seen the full thing, but there's a film in 34, I believe called G-Men, which stars James Cagney in the role of like an FBI uh, agent. And it is, if I couldn't confirm this. And again, I was watching it kind of casually, but it very much feels like it was made with the impetus of like, okay, 
We've seen these gangster films used and they glorify crime and criminals and they make them look cool. What if we take the same tools and use them to instead make FBI look awesome and cool, which I believe is also the impetus that eventually gives us the Untouchables TV show. So maybe that's also why I'm having this interpretation of why the film exists. (laughs) So yeah, good pick. Thank you. It's a really awesome movie. And if you're a fan of the, the more famous remake, you might be surprised how closely it actually sticks to the 32 version. Hmm. Just a lo- I thought they didn't have much in common at all, but same structure, same sister stuff, same. The world is yours. Okay. Uh, neon sign. Uh, Tony with a scar. I mean, the scene with the, the boss where it's like uh, begging for his life after he betrays Tony is like, they're not scene for scene, obviously, but you can, when you've seen one, you can clearly see the influence. So, cool. yeah. All right. Well, I'll move on to my first pick, which is a movie we've talked about before, but we're going to talk about it again, which is 1931's Frankenstein by director James Whale. And it's, of course, based off of Mary Shelley's book, um, but not that closely. <laughs> so... <laughs> But there's a there's a line in Frankenstein that I want to point out. It comes from like a larger speech, which I think is pretty awesome, where Frankenstein has just done his big experiment and he's got the monster alive and he's talking with this other doctor. And this other doctor is very critical of what he's done and says that what he's done is really dangerous. And so Dr. Frankenstein kind of looks at him and says, haven't you ever wanted to do anything that's dangerous? And then he kind of has this little speech about that. And there's one particular line where he says, where would we be if nobody ever tried to find out what's beyond? And then he goes into like, haven't you ever wanted to know like what makes the clouds or what makes the trees burn? What turns darkness into light? And he's asking him these kind of very philosophical questions. uh, These really think about life questions, which I love this part of the movie. And honestly, I think that if this little speech wasn't in the movie, I think it would be definitely to the film's detriment. And I don't know that I would like it as much as I do. Um, Because what he's basically getting at is scientific curiosity, which is, which is something I always applaud because I think what people, when people see science, especially these days, when they're not, you know, directly involved with science they see it as like just this kind of entity that's out there that tells tells people what's what uh when really science is asking us asking questions and then just trying to find the answers when it comes down to the basics of what science is that's what it is and there's and there's a philosophy around that for sure the fact that you know science should be objective we shouldn't be bringing our own our own biases into it we should just be trying to find out how this world works and i think that Shelley's well it's sorry it's not Shelley's speech I'll get to that in a second but I think this little speech in Frankenstein really gets to the heart of that and especially that one line where would we be if nobody tried to find out what lies beyond I think that that's a great testament to the philosophy of science and so now I guess we can give this away Dan either next week or a couple weeks from now at some point in the near future we're going to be doing an episode on adaptations Mm-hmm. And this could very easily have fit into that. I already have other picks for that, so I'm not I'm not doing that here. But this is 
Frankenstein is an interesting movie because it's very well known that it is not very true to Shelley's book in the fact that, especially with the plot, what happens in that book and what happens in the movie are very different things. And the way that the monster is dealt with is a very different thing. Um, but even the framing of it being a monster yes, is a different thing. Very different. Uh, but Shelley's book really asks the tough questions about when does scientific curiosity go too far and really looks at those ideas, the ideas of science itself. And so this speech is kind of a, even though it's not from the book, it's really speaks to the heart of the book, I think. And when people say that this is not a very close adaptation, no, maybe not in the step-by-step, but I think it's still got, you know, the good intentions of that book at heart. And I think this is a good example of that. Yeah, I uh, I actually developed something of a reputation in my first university year English tutorial because we taught Frankenstein. Well, we didn't teach it. I learned Frankenstein was taught it by the instructors. And a lot of the the instructor would frequently bring up the movie and kind of uh, dismissively and derisively speak of it. And in our a lot of our tutorial discussions where the prof wasn't there, so I felt a little bit more emboldened. I would, as much as I could, kind of stick up the flag for the film and say, yes, plot-wise, it's vastly different, but make the case that I think it gets to, or is trying to get to a lot of the same ideas that Shelley's book is um, in the context of a commercial monster film in the 30s. And, uh, you know, you can be a purist and be upset about the changes made, but I think the attempt to stick to that spirit is really admirable. And this this speech that you highlight is a fantastic example of just that, because it takes that very seriously. I think to me, the key, too, is also uh, Colin Clive's performance as Frankenstein. He's not playing this as mad scientist. He's very calm. He's very rational in laying this out. And it makes sense. It's a totally reasonable explanation for what he's doing. It's only until near the end of the speech that he starts to get a little more heightened and um, mad scientisty. But the the basics of what he's putting forth are persuasive. And you also understand um, on a character level, too, it makes sense that this guy isn't just some, you know, uh, evil, insane scientist for the purposes of fun fiction. The character takes this seriously. He really believes in this work. And that's also what makes it tragic. Yeah. So. It's, it's interesting because he's he's speaking very passionately about the scientific pursuit and he's right. Like where would we be if nobody asked these important questions? Well, (laughs) we, you know, as a society, we'd be where we were 10,000, 12,000 years ago. Right. But he's acknowledging that it takes risks, but at the same time, his discovery goes horribly wrong. Right. Which kind of, well, you had alluded to a certain modern movie that just came out. Well, this film and that film and Oppenheimer have a lot in common, right? Because it, Oppenheimer is very similar idea. Like the scientific pursuit is one thing. What ends up happening with that is pretty disastrous as well. Um, so I think those well, are two kindred spirit films. I mean, I believe the original subtitle to Frankenstein, the novel was Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. It is. Um, yeah, I mean, and it's this interesting question of like, and it's something Oppenheimer deals with very directly of, you know, not 
that you can't detach yourself into just the realm of theory. You need to think about what the ethics of what you're actually doing are and what the implications and effects of this are going to be. Um, and it's in the case of it's it's different in, in Frankenstein because Frankenstein isn't setting out to make a weapon, which obviously Oppenheimer explicitly is. Um, yeah. But there's certainly a shared there's a shared quality of like having to think through the consequences of what you're doing. And I also think in terms of like the, and this is specific to the film, but the conditions of like what Frankenstein does to facilitate this, the fact that he's like stealing body parts and things like that. And if you are reanimating a living brain, these questions of like, and maybe it sounds silly to talk about like this because it's, it's complete fiction, but like that brain didn't consent to what you're doing to it. And is it moral or ethically just to do that, even if it's in the name of potentially defeating death? Um, and those are relevant questions when you think about, say, any type of scientific uh, experimentation on people or even animals. Of like, mm -hmm. even if it's for a very just and noble cause, is it ethical to do that? And it's something that the I think the film does get at, and it's something that I think really was part of my crucial point in defending the film because there was so much point about like they turned him into a monster. They turned him into a monster. And I was like, not really. Like, he's immediately this very sympathetic character and is very much portrayed as a, we call him the monster, but he is a victim. Fritz is immediately whipping him for, like, no reason. Um, and I think that that's something that, uh, again, like, adds to your point about thinking through, like, even if it is a rational exploration explanation for why this work is just and moral and and worthwhile well when we actually that's fine in theory and certainly if you're you know well-spoken well-educated english gentleman you, you're more likely to be able to have possess the rhetoric to make that kind of persuasive argument but when you actually take that work into the world what then does it look like yeah yeah those are very good questions um it's definitely a, a movie with lots to chew on that's for sure. Because the ethical question, like, it's not, because it's not an easy thing to answer. Like, the Russians sent dogs into space. Well, <laughs> mm -hmm. that was pretty cruel for the dogs, and they ended up dying. But if they didn't, where, how far behind would we be set? I don't know. It's, it's, they're tough questions to ask for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we're getting better at, uh, what's what's ethical and what's not and how to how to monitor that but back when Shelley wrote this book you know maybe not <laughs> right you had yeah you had people who were um working with radioactive materials that didn't know any better and then everybody ended up getting sick from them and um there's all kinds of stories about things like that but yeah that's a good point has to push through maybe <laughs> yeah it's it's a tough thing because the the idea of scientific philosophy right is it's essentially it's for the betterment of mankind and so we have to ask ourselves um where is that line right when is it no longer how far can we take this where even if it is for the betterment of mankind it's too far right there's got well, be better or even to thinking like betterment it's are you thinking about betterment in terms of big picture or little picture and if you're thinking of betterment in terms of like well you know in the long run if this works 
it will be it will be a betterment just good but in the short term if it has all these uh harmful consequences this violence that's inflicted is that really betterment it's certainly not betterment to them those people who are suffering to get to this advanced end um and again like i think that's something the film is is dealing with it's a little tricky in the film because obviously we're dealing with again a highly fictionalized concept of resurrecting the dead so it it detaches it in a way and maybe that's also why it's easy to just turn it into like spooky fun but i think those questions are still there yeah absolutely and they should be like Mm -hmm. i think we do need to tackle these questions head on because as much as i love the romanticism of of this speech putting it in the context of what he's doing in the movie is important as well so yeah and it makes one wonder like is it you know it's not even maybe it's not even necessarily specifically the experiment itself or the research itself that is immoral it's the way in which he undertakes it that he's doing it in secret um really without any sort of like peer like peer review system or team to help him he has one assistant who is clearly not qualified for what he's really being asked to do in the long term you know maybe that's the real issue um or one of the issues i shouldn't say the real issue but one of the issues there is it's not so much that like again like going in this fictional world where you can potentially resurrect the dead it's not maybe that that's inherently bad but that doing it without any kind of restraint or without any kind of care without someone else to uh, or without other people to really work through this with you, that's the the danger. And that ends up being really what the causes the everything to spiral out of control. But then the other question of it is like, and I actually more I think about it more, it is an interesting question. You know, you're you're grave robbing to do this and then accidentally taking a different brain to do shenanigans. <laughs> this question of consent, where it's like they don't agree to that. What horror are you subjecting them to to revive them? What is what would that do to someone especially when you start to dive into potentially you know theological questions about what happens after death like if this is a world where there's a heaven have you ripped someone out of heaven and then into this this body that is not theirs like how can one you again no one can consent to that unless they have it in writing when they die you can try to revive me if anyone's listening for me you can (laughs) <laughs> I I hate that the message of so many stories is you have to accept death. No, that's a quitter's mentality. If we keep working at it, we can get the immortality juice. I, just, I don't see why this should be so hard to grasp. But in any event, um, I think that actually does add a really interesting moral di- uh, dimension to it, especially when in a lot of uh, research, whether it be uh, sort of the natural sciences or the social sciences, the main question, uh, ethical question that ends up coming up is informed consent. Do your participants, do whether they be research subjects or people you're studying, are they adequately consenting? Are they adequately informed? Do they know fully what they are consenting to? Do they have the um, agency to back out? And this is a scenario where really you, you can never really have that. And... Yeah one argument would be well then you do you don't do it it does not matter what betterment you can say would come from this you cannot have consent from the subject from the participant um so you don't you know yeah and i think that's 
that's definitely where we're at. And I think it's interesting that <laughs> we've kind of moved from, because when like Shelley's book originally came out, when this movie originally came out, I think the big offense there was, you know, the fact that Dr. Frankenstein's trying to play God by reviving life. And now, and now we're looking at it more like, well, no, it's more the means of how he did it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's interesting too, just the way that those mindsets have evolved. Yeah, well, that's an interesting debate that comes up, and I'm more familiar with it in the context of film specifically than literature, but there's a certain argument that says a lot of film is anti-science. Scientists are often the villain. Think about like the atomic paranoia movies or the fact that the mad scientist is in and of itself a trope. The parade of superhero villains and Spider-Man villains in particular that are scientists who, you know, go rogue. And I think a retort to that is it's not specifically that science as a concept is the enemy it's not that to to go back to Shelley's novel it's not that you can't play god it's what are the actual ethical ramifications and consequences of what you're doing questions themselves are not unreasonable questions um but how you're going about answering them that's where uh eyebrows are raised (laughs) it's like i can't remember there was an old quote from somebody whose name I don't know, but it was something along the lines of, you know, science would be perfect if we kept the humans out of it. <laughs> but something along those lines anyway. That's that's pretty good. Yeah. I like that a lot. I mean, it's interesting too where this film has, and we talked about this way back when we brought up Frankenstein um, in one of our Halloween episodes, but the fact that it's got like the abnormal brain is like something where like historically you could talk about how the scientific explanations for explaining people's intelligences, whether it be in terms of in the context of disability or in the context of phrenology and, you know, racist science, science, as it was called, has been used as a harmful tool. The fact that this film is directed by a gay British man coming from a country where being gay was criminalized and in America pathologized, it was officially listed as like a mental illness. These were things that were, you know, uh, arrived at with quote unquote science. And, uh, and obviously we would say the science that is there is not real science. It's not mm-hmm. good. It's, it's flawed. It's, it's the assumptions are wrong. The conclusions are wrong. The evidence is wrong. Doesn't follow the scientific method. We would dismiss that, but I think it's very interesting and maybe coincidental, but still valid that this film, which is asking these questions is intersecting in all these ways with uh, real historical examples of how science has been used as a tool for violence, for yeah. oppression, for harm. Yeah, that's for sure. Which is why you can kind of see where the movies would go would go down those roads then, but mm-hmm. of of villainizing it. I'm trying to think now of like movies that celebrate science. There's not there's not a whole lot. There's like contact and I mean there mm-hmm. are definitely some, but yeah, they're few and far between. Uh, in this one, Adam I think Curry it's in the movie. <laughs> Is there? <laughs> yeah, nineteen forty-three. Oh, there you go. We'll Perfect. talk about that when we do our early forties episode. <laughs> um, yeah, there there are some, but it is like they they are few and far between, like you say. And in part, I think it's also just the needs of drama. A movie yeah. about a scientist who does good things is not nearly as interesting as a movie about a scientist who accidentally makes a monster. Yeah, like. 
<laughs> the scientific mindset isn't sexy. <laughs> no. Right? That's <laughs> I think that's the main issue. Yeah. It's I important, mean, the, but it's not not glamorous. The needs of drama <clears throat> always come up. Yeah. Um it'd be an interesting thing to think about though. And I'm sure like I, a lot of these movies though, I think you probably could, you know, look at more critically and deconstruct and realize, well, the problem isn't strictly science or scientists, it's ethics. It's people behaving in in uh inhumane ways exactly um i don't know how many movies it's there's a quote from i think it was from james nairmore in the book on kubrick i could be wrong though where he's making the point about the famous francois truffaut there's no such thing as an anti-war movie and saying well it may be true there's no such thing as an anti-war movie there's very few movies that are actively pro-war either you know they might be they might find a certain like thrill in in depictions of combat, or they might find a certain uh, reason for wars to be fought, but they are not explicitly like advocating for war, um, which is a different topic, and we can break that down further and re-question it. But it's an interesting thing too, where like, are these movies like maybe they're not uh, pro science per se, but they're not strictly anti science either. That makes sense. Yeah. And if you just isolate this little speech. I just love it. It's very much something like Carl Sagan would say. And mm-hmm. there's something I just romantic about that, I guess. It's very well written. It's very yeah. well performed. Um, Sweet. Great, great pick. Um, and a good example of how the filmmakers were still respectful to Shelley's ideas, even when. I agree. Them. Good Alrighty. adaptation. Yeah. Uh, take that, Mr. English professor in my first year. <laughs> you just got dunked on. Um, all right. My second pick uh, comes from Howard Hughes, again, this time as director uh, from 1930, Hell's Angels, which I talked about in my uh, first episode of the Who Watches the Watchlist series. Um, it's also a film that the making of was dramatized in a really memorable section of Scorsese's The Aviator. And essentially why the film is so interesting is that it starts production in the silent era, intending to be a silent film, goes so over budget, so over schedule. By the time it's ready for release, uh oh, the jazz singer's out. Well, we can't, (laughs) the talkie is come, the uh, silent films are dead. So we need to remake the film for sound, which meant in some cases reshooting scenes entirely at some other cases it just meant adding sounds to already shot footage but the resulting film is this really interesting mismatch of styles and you could look at that and say well the film is lacks cohesion and it technically does but there are all sorts of films that have that cohesion hell's angels is more interesting because it's this weird not quite a silent movie not quite a sound film and the fact that it jumps back and forth between techniques the fact that you get um scenes for example that have color tinting which is a very silent film specific style of making movies that really fades once you get into the sound era uh the fact that uh certain scenes you can tell were originally shot without sound and then there's some sound added but it's like no 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 this is not this doesn't fit that's part of the fun um and my favorite example of this or one of my favorites at least is a scene the conflict of the film involves uh, World War One fighter pilots, and specifically because we have three main characters, two of which are brothers, one of which is German, who are friends before the war, and then the war breaks out and they're separated on different sides. And there's a scene involving the German character who's on 
uh, I think it's a Zeppelin with his um, fellow Germans engaged in, you know, World War One aerial activities. And all the dialogue is in German. But instead of it being subtitled, we get the classic silent movie title cards to translate that dialogue instead. And what I love about this is, one, I just, I like silent cards. They're fun. They're really, this. there's a beauty to them that's all themselves. But what I like about it is I like how it captures this idea of Hell's Angels as a film that almost feels like it comes from a parallel universe where the language of the talkie evolved in different ways. Because um, now subtitles are the standard and norm. And even someone who would never, ever, ever watch a subtitled movie understands that subtitles are the primary way in which movies are translated across different languages uh that or you dub over the footage uh which even people who would often never watch a film subtitled would also never watch a film dubbed because it's not right (laughs) and you know what i find interesting is like you have this film though that like that those standards don't exist yet so it's like okay well we've shot you know how how would we do this? How would we do the language? Like, well, before we didn't have any sound, we used these title cards. What if we just use that to translate them? It's really a really intuitive solution. And you see other films from this early 30s period where instead of that, they would straight up shoot different language versions of movies. It helped when you had actors who could speak multiple languages. In extreme cases, you had stuff like the Spanish Dracula, which famously was shot overnight and the crew would look at what the English crew is doing and try to top it. So it's actually a very different movie in a lot of ways, even though it's technically the same sets and the same plot because it's all different actors and it's different setups. But um, I just love this idea of like, well, film language, the, the standards of how films are made, certain things we kind of accept as being just the way things are. It's naturally the way they are. And it's like, that's not. Those are the rules we made for them. You know, it could have been the case that well, we just shot different language versions for different movies to sell to different markets. Or it could have been the case that we use title cards to translate uh, different languages. That's not the way it panned out. And you can start to break down why it didn't. It would be prohibitively expensive to shoot multiple languages, especially depending on how many countries you're trying to sell your movie to. (laughs) (laughs) Um, At a certain point, that's uh, sustainable. And title cards, they work for the type of dialogue exchanges you get in silent movies but the more verbal and verbose your scripts get title cards are just really gonna not work pacing wise break the flow pretty bad yeah absolutely so it's not to say that like we missed out by films not developing along this this line but it is interesting to think like well what if you know instead of the talkie kind of completely reconfiguring how movies are made uh sound films evolved in a way that was actually more similar and more in line with how silent films were. I don't know. It's fun to think about. And I think this scene is a good way of uh, glimpsing a window into that, which is what Hell's Angels does more broadly. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing to muse on for sure. I like that you brought this up. I actually, I had not seen this movie. I watched it this afternoon, so I did manage to get this one in. Um, and when this scene was happening, I was like, oh, uh, they're talking German and I have no idea what they're saying. And I'm thinking, cause I was watching it on YouTube. That's where I found it. And I'm thinking, Oh, it's probably a YouTube caption problem or something. I'm not getting the subtitles. And then all of a sudden I get the, we get the title card. and I'm, Oh, I see. <laughs> okay. Well, that's interesting. 
So yeah, it's definitely an interesting merging of, and what year was this? 31, 30? 1930. 1930s. So we're like right at the beginning of, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting meshing, that's for sure. Um, it's interesting that it was originally for silent because there's there's quite a bit of dialogue scenes in here between the two mm-hmm. brothers. Like there's a lot. They must have done a lot of reshoots. I want to say, oh my god, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna look up who they got to do to really help facilitate directing the sound sequences because it's someone like major. It's not just like some jobber. It's someone who goes on to be a rather seminal figure in his own right. So I'm gonna look that up right now. Hmm. Yeah, that was, and I will say, like, that scene you're talking about, the scene on the Zeppelin, that's, that ends up going pretty dark. <laughs> yes. I was like, what is going on here? And it's, it ends up being quite disturbing. Oh, boy. <clears throat> yeah, it's specifically, too, that's another good example, that whole sequence of how um, the sort of mixing of different techniques, because you get... Like the the color tinting there is some of the most evocative and beautiful of the whole film. And then when the Zeppelin yeah. eventually goes up in flames and the flame is in color in a way that the rest isn't, again, is a very like, not to say you couldn't do that in a sound film. Obviously you can, this is a sound film, but that type of visual is so uh, specific to any type of visual effect, the silent era. You get similar like, the one element in color, say, in stuff like the Phantom of the Opera from 1925. Um, And it's, it's, again, like, going back to that point about, like, it can be rough to go back to early 30s movies and see how uh, just frigid and awkward and clumsy they can feel. Not to say there aren't some really good ones. I think Scarface was one of the great ones to go back to one of our earlier picks and Frankenstein as well. But there is that awkwardness. And this movie gets to sidestep that by keeping that one foot still really firmly in the silent era um which is also nice because the silent films had really reached a zenith in their artistry and it would be a shame to just let that go yeah that's true uh there was yeah there's definitely some striking imagery there like when the zeppelin first shows up coming out of the clouds that was a pretty cool image Um, and when it does crash like that is that's impressive and Okay, so there must be something weird with the version I watched on YouTube, though, because every once in a while I'd get colorized scenes. Now, the, what you just said about the Zeppelin, that makes sense that they would actually purposely colorize that. But there was like a couple just regular dialogue characters in a room scenes that were suddenly all of a sudden colorized. And I'm like, is it just mixing and matching this version that I'm watching? What is happening? That might weird. be... So first of all, I did look up and I thought it was, and I didn't want to say it in case I was wrong. It was in fact, James Whale who helped direct oh, yes. the transition to uh talkie parts. That makes sense. I don't know. Cause I, I think I probably watched the same version as you did. I would not be surprised if some of those sections were just shot in early two strip technicolor. Hmm. Um, I don't know. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Uh, do do. I I mean, okay, I'm quickly looking through. It does look like at least some scenes were shot in um, like a, a color process. Oh, really? So that's actually part of the, it's not just some weird YouTube cut. It's actually. No, that's, that's, uh, and it's, that's also, I don't think, it, I think it'd be, if it would be anything, it would be like a relic from the Ted Turner colorizing of movies era. Interesting. Um, But then it's also like, why wouldn't the whole thing. Right. <laughs> And I, th- I think what it is, is like if you it kind of if you watch the original Star is Born, for example, 
it's also Technicolor, but it's two strip, I think, not three. And it doesn't look like normal to our standards right. of color. Like the color is more, looks almost faded or like more washed out. It doesn't, it's not as vibrant or it doesn't pop as much. Um, and that's my memory of the color sequences in in uh, Hell's Angels have that effect where it's yeah. like, it's like like the pink, for example, is kind of like a faded pink rather than a hot pink. Yeah. And it's weird. It's, it's kind of like how like a Nolan movie these days will suddenly change to the IMAX aspect ratio at certain points mm-hmm. and then go back to normal again. Because um, I'd be also like, wait a minute. This is in color. It wasn't in color before. What's going on? <laughs> but it does. It really does help with the that blue tint to the night scenes. I think that that looks really good. Mm hmm. It's a, it's a good way of shooting at night without, you know, being too dark and uh, yeah, which is still yeah. something filmmakers are I don't want to say struggling with, but it's something that filmmakers have to work with. Yeah. You know, how do you light something at night so that it's clearly still night, but you can also see what's happening in a way that is satisfying to an audience and is appropriate for the type of movie you're making. I know Red Letter Media, I don't remember what they were reviewing, but they were making jokes about you know how a lot of nighttime scenes now are lit so dark you can't really see what's happening and saying it's a good thing Titanic wasn't made today. The entire <laughs> ending is just like a black screen. Yeah. Um, um and it's interesting. I, I'm curious where you're gonna fall on this one because this is this movie, I think its natural comparison point, especially when you're talking about it did come out of the silent era is of course the first Oscar winner, which is wings. Mm-hmm. So how, where does this hold up for you for wings, which is, which is the better film for you? I would need to watch wings again. Cause I saw it much younger. Like I saw hell's angels like this year uh, or maybe early la- or late last year. I saw a wings when I was like a teenager plowing through best picture winners. Mm, right. And a was not as well versed in silent film. B was probably more snooty about the corny aspects of the film. Um, Cause looking back, like I haven't seen the film in full since then, but I've seen, I've watched sections of it and uh, some of the filmmaking is pretty impressive. There's that one really famous shot now that people reference cause it's referenced in the last Jedi um, moving through the bar. Oh yeah. So I would need to watch it again. I think the other interesting comparison with this is uh, all quiet on the Western front. Cause it's the same year. Yes. And What's interesting, though, is like I expected Hell's Angels to be just like essentially the Top Gun Maverick of its day to All Quiet on the Western Front's All Quiet on the Western Front Netflix remake. Um, <laughs> you know, one is a somber, chilling anti-war movie and the other is Wiki playing go fast. Um, and that's kind of true. But I will say like the the last act of Hell's Angels is way more uh, somber and uh morose than i was expecting in in very melodramatic and kind of silly ways to some extent but um you know that that idea of like world war one as this meaningless hellscape conflict where no good can come from it that really holds true which was shocking to me because i was not expecting any kind of i don't know uh even vague anti-war sentiment from the movie from a movie called hell's angels yeah, isn't that the case? Yeah, there's definitely like a trashy aspect to it. Kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, something like Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor is something that I thought of a couple times as I was watching this. For sure. Um, but it's definitely more entertaining than something like Wings. 
Uh, yeah, I think for sure. Well, like, that it held my attention the, a lot better. And that's the, the reason I'd be curious to go back to it because I could imagine Wings might be a more sophisticated piece of filmmaking in some ways, but I think Hell's Angels. I mean, Hell's Angels. The reason I watched it is I saw the scenes in the Aviator of Howard Hughes sh- shooting the aerial battles and thinking right. that looks awesome, and that's why I watched it. And that's those are the other than my interest in the film as like this half silent, half sound film. Those aerial battles are by far the best thing in the movie. They rule. Yeah. They're especially so when exciting. the bombs would like explode, um, and you'd actually like see them the explosions from above. That was pretty sweet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that's. You know, that that's why I kind of give some pause because it's like I feel like Wings is probably the classier film. And I probably shouldn't be like Hell's Angels is so much better because it's more awesomer. At this point, I am inclined to say it's more awesomer, <laughs> but fair. I would like to rewatch Wings because <laughs> it has been a very long time. And there's yeah. like so many movies from we've talked about this before, but like that period where you're just watching films on lists. Like I rewatched uh, Midnight Cowboy today for the first time since I was a teenager and I was like, yeah, this is a masterpiece. I, I didn't know what to make of it at like 15 or however old I was. But at 28, it clicks a lot more. So, yeah, nice. Yeah, well, that's a good pick. So it's, it's an interesting bridge film from one to mm-hmm. the other. Well, since we've talked about some sound films and now we've talked about this movie that connects the two eras, why don't we talk about a silent film? even though it actually came out after, uh, which is Charlie Chaplin's City Lights from 1931. And when I was thinking like what my next movie was going to be, I actually did consider All Quiet on the Western Front. I was going to watch that this afternoon. And then I saw you had, you were going to do Hell's Angels. I was like, well, maybe we should pick something a little later to kind of, <laughs> to kind of mix <laughs> in with us. So I decided to watch Hell's Angels instead. Um you said I watched City. Oh, sorry. I see what you mean. Yeah. And then I decided, well, City Lights would be a good pick for this. So City Lights is, of course, Charlie Chaplin as the tramp, his lovable film persona. Um, and in City Lights, he's basically, he falls in love with a girl and he's trying to get her money for surgery because she's blind. I guess they could fix that back then. I don't know. I mean, there's, there's <laughs> surgeries you can get for the yeah. blind. Yeah. So, so anyway, that's the, the crux of the film. And along the way, he ends up like meeting this millionaire. But the way he meets him is it's a scene where he's down at the canal, at the city canal. And the millionaire is basically, he's had it with life. He's going to, he's going to drown himself in the canal. And he goes there and, in, classic movie fashion i guess he's got a a rope a noose and he ties it around a big rock and he's gonna put the noose on one end and throw the rock in the other that's gonna be his plan it's a very visual like it's when you see him and his props you know exactly what his plan is which works really well for a silent movie okay but of course charlie chaplin comes along and at first he's very oblivious very like mr bean like he doesn't he's not really paying attention to what's going on and then he figures out what this guy's going to do and he tries to talk him out of out of drowning himself and and it's very funny because he's expressing very um eloquently you know with his hands and with his facial expressions this idea of don't do it you're you know tomorrow's another day and it's and then the title cards it's something like 
the birds will sing again tomorrow or something like that. It's very <laughs> funny. Um, but he eventually he's trying to talk him out of doing it. <clears throat> and then finally the millionaire says, no, I've had it. So I'm done with this life. And he throws the noose over his head. But of course he throws it over both their heads. And then as he goes, bends down to pick up the rock, his head goes out of the noose. So now it's entirely around Charlie Chaplin's neck. So we can see exactly where that's going. One, then he tosses the rock into the river and Charlie Chaplin flies in. <laughs> this is, there's a whole, this is a whole scene. Like there's a whole bunch of back and forth going into the river, not going into the river, falling into the river. It, it's, a, it's a whole set piece basically. And it's my favorite part of the movie. I think it's hilarious. Um, and they, these two end up becoming best friends throughout the whole rest of the movie too. Until the millionaire is sober. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, uh, yes. Uh, but the small moment I want to pick out of this is the actual moment where Charlie Chaplin gets flung into the river. And the problem is, is that it's very visual. So listeners go and watch it, but it's all movies on YouTube. If I can try to explain it, the rock, we, cause the thing is, is we know exactly what's going to happen. Once that news is around his neck, we know he's going in the river. It's just, it's inevitable. Um, but you gotta see Charlie Chaplin, just the physical acting of <laughs> him actually going into the river because it's more like, you know, those like old vaudeville on stage things where they'd have the hook and they'd like pull somebody off stage at the hook and they just kind of fly off like in this really unnatural position. That's kind of what he's like, where his his body just kind of turns limp and ragdollish. And I think it speaks to the testament of Charlie Chaplin as such a physical comedic actor that he knows exactly what position his body needs to be in and how he he needs to react to this action to be the absolute funniest that it can look um so <laughs> that's my moment i think it's nice. i think it's hilarious and i think it's somebody at who already was at the top of their craft showing exactly why they are the iconic performer that they are it's a great pick I, i'm glad that you elaborated as much as you did on the really specific moment itself because i don't have a ton to add to that but i do have some thoughts about this sequence as a whole one is that and they kind of uh tie into each other but one is that this is so often remembered as like a love story that you forget it's also kind of a buddy movie about these two mismatched pairs who go on these raging keggers together which are my favorite parts of the movie <laughs> they're the funniest parts yeah. by far um and the other thing is that this is also a film that gets cited so much sometimes in complimentary ways sometimes in uh, crit uh critical ways and sometimes in a way that's like it's critical but we still love it ways of being just overwhelmingly sentimental and schmaltzy with like He's paying for his blind girlfriend's surgery and when she sees him at the end and he's making the face with his hand in his mouth and so <laughs> I mean I love it but it's very like you have to be you have to have your receptors ready for a certain kind of corn but at the same time this whole extended bit is based on this character wanting to kill himself which is so <laughs> dark and the thing is having recently watched all the Buster Keaton short films suicide is a super common theme in silent comedy so if you're the kind of boomer who's sitting around going, everyone seems all depressed these days. We didn't have diagnoses back then. Yeah, they did. Everyone in the 20s was depressed as shit. They were making movies but wanting to kill themselves, and the audience are going, I get that. 
<laughs> I see it. I live it every day. <laughs> um, and I'm I'm being a little bit fun, but also I think it's actually kind of crucial to a lesser sung element for why the film works is there's a bit of a balance. Like it's got like the most, you know, cloyingly sweet and sentimental material ever. Um, but it works one because the movie just it owns it and sells it, but it's also offset by this darker element that's mine for some really great comedy. So when it gets to the heartstring yanking, I won't even say pulling yanking uh, <laughs> sections, you're like, ah, it's fine. Movies kind of brought me to so many places. I'm okay with this. Yeah, that's yeah. It's it's a very interesting movie. Totally, like what he's trying to do. I think he. I think it strikes her quite well. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I mean, a lot of people say this is one of his best, if not his best. Like a lot of people will say this is his best movie. I don't know where I fall on that, but I've been meaning to there. marathon through at least all of his like classic silence again. Um, but I do think, I mean, as much as it's easy to make fun of the the sentimental elements of his filmmaking, they are kind of his greatest weapon, like other than, of course, his just amazing physicality. Like Chaplin, something about him hitting those beats, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just his face. It's just the, you know, the the very vulnerable physicality and the kind of curious way he walks and something in his, his eyes. But you really buy it in a way that I don't think you would with nearly anyone else. Certainly Buster Keaton could not pull it off. And I don't say that as a criticism, it's just not what he does. Keaton's got that stoicism, baby. Um, <laughs> but you really miss it when you see like, cause he makes in 47, this movie, Monsieur Vaudot, which has been somewhat reclaimed, but it's this very like cynical and kind of movie about like this guy who like kills these rich women and at the end it's played by Chaplin he makes a speech about like don't the nations the great warring nations kill people in greater numbers and it's like I don't buy this from you like you're so good at being like this bleeding heart source of love and sentiment that I I don't know I admire you trying to do something different but it's just it's so wrong yeah yeah and I mean at this point in City Lights he's been doing the tramp for what 17 years at this point so like he's got that character absolutely down and I, this is his second last go around because i think as the tramp specifically the tramp yeah specifically i think technically so. the great dictator isn't yeah um, but it looks just like him but it's technically not yeah so i can see where you're coming from that's because that's pretty far removed at that point what mm-hmm. would you say 47 yeah yeah that's pretty far removed but it also just is Chaplin in sound is never as good as Chaplin in yeah. silence like it is for Keaton and Lloyd as well I even found that with The Great Dictator which is still a pretty widely lauded film mm-hmm. like a very respected film but even then it's it does throw you off <laughs> like well all the best parts are the the physical stuff it's yeah. it's uh, Hinkle playing with the globe on his finger or the action with the chairs or the speech at the end which is verbal but it's nonsense verbal and it's the microphones that is really what gives it and and Chaplin's sort of animated performance than than actual speaking that's why modern times is so great because he's like other people speak in the movie he doesn't yeah yeah that's my is... favorite but again i want to rewatch them all so yeah yeah this one's definitely up there because he's i mean at this point he is at the absolute top of his craft like he's the only one who can still get away with making a silent film Absolutely. in 1931 yeah isn't that the truth or 36 is the fact yeah that's the real one where yeah. it's like how are you doing this charlie <laughs> 
I'm glad you did because like and I in a lot of ways I feel like modern times is a great coda to the silent era as mm-hmm. a whole. Um but yeah, it's it's miraculous that he had the clout to do that because even his peers, Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd, absolutely did not. No. So that's true. And he can fall in the river like nobody's business. <laughs> that's why. That's why <laughs> that's he earned right. it. Studio wasn't gonna let him, then he fell into the river real good. They're like, all right, let him make his little silent picture. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Mr. Chaplin. Yep. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, there we go. We did it. I decided we got had some levity into uh yeah. the mix. Yeah, it's not all discussions about playing God and you know killing people with Tommy guns. <laughs> we like to have some fun on this show. That's right. <laughs> with with the suicidal scene. <laughs> yeah. Everything I mean, we, we, we like to have fun, but we gotta keep it real too. That's right. Oh boy. Sweet. Well, there we go. So we did we've done all three of our 30s now, haven't we? We gotta go to the 20s, man. <laughs> That'll come eventually. Oh boy. I am not as well versed in the 20s, that's for sure. Uh, I'm not either. Although according to Letterboxd, I think it's my highest rated decade. Oh, really? But I think that's also Probably because like, you're cherry picking so much. Well, right? Yeah, it's essentially, yeah, survivor's bias in a way. Like I'm only watching or for the most part watching like the greatest silent films ever. Yeah, exactly. You know, whereas like the 2010s and 2020s, I'm watching whatever garbage just floats in front of me. <laughs> so um, although this year I've actually in terms of new releases, not to get too off topic, but I've avoided watching anything like too bad. Like I haven't seen Ant-Man and the Wasp quantum mania i haven't seen cocaine bear i haven't seen the flash all the stuff that people really hate i'm just like yeah <laughs> just let it go it. i will fair. watch ant-man and the wasp quantum mania eventually um but i'll be interested to talk to you about it when you do i would have liked to watch the the flash it's too bad it's gonna come to crave which is a streaming service i have no patience for because it would have been perfect like saturday night having some beverages and watching in that context kind of movie, because all the clips I've seen on like Twitter and things like that are just so bad that that's an environment that I think would really fuel just the, that kind of viewing. But I'm like, I'm not getting crave 20 bucks a month for a streaming service. Get over it. No way. (laughs) Yeah. It's a bit much. So I have it right now for star Trek. So I'm sure I'll watch it when it gets there. Um. Yeah. Oh, I wanted to ask you: Did you do the Barbenheimer full one day? <laughs> oh yeah, not in one day. I did okay. them. I did Oppenheimer Friday with Brooke, and then I did Barbie Saturday by myself. Because <laughs> <laughs> Brooke was going out of town to visit family, so I'm like, okay. So nice. Yeah. Uh, had my uh my classic Barbie fit of uh combat shorts and a shirt for the band Def. Um. I fit right in in the theater. Excellent. Um, I, I I didn't do the, so I did as close as I could to a double feature. Um, it was within 24 hours, put it that way. Nice. I didn't see Barbie. I only saw Oppenheimer, but I got to, I got to, I just got to tell you the story. So I got there. I parked in the, the mall parking lot across the street. Um, cause I think it's cheaper parking and this little car pulls up beside me 
And kind of like, you know, those clown cars where suddenly just a ton of clowns pull power out. <laughs> That's what this was, except there's all these guys pull out of this car that was way too small for them. And they're all dressed in like suits and fedoras and carrying briefcases. I was like, that's amazing. That's <laughs> <laughs> pretty sweet. Yeah, there's the, the excitement of going to the theater was fun to see. I mean, even watching Barbie, there was a kid I noticed who at one point just I only noticed because they sprinted out of the theater and I realized like, oh, they have to go to the bathroom, but they don't want to miss like as as few of the movie as they can. So and they when they came back, they were running back in. I was like, it's hard not to be charmed by that. Yeah. You know, people who are just That's so sure. wanting to go to a movie and so happy to be there. That's great. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Uh, okay, well, let's end off with some listener emails. So we got a couple emails while I was on vacay. And the first one is from Carl. Uh, regular listener, Carl. And Carl says he's responding to our director b-sides episode he says oh you're gonna like this one he says something i would consider a b-side would be david fincher's the curious case of benjamin button yeah (laughs) he says it's a beautiful deeply human film and it's criminally underrated if i were to pick a moment to highlight it would be one of the final shots of the movie which shows the vignettes of all the people benjamin encountered in his life he says it brings a tear to his eye and fills him with joy Carl, we are on the same page. I love this film and specifically for what you're talking about. It has such a deep affection for people. Um, And I think it really comes through at the end in that moment of the, just these almost like tableau images of all the people Benjamin has met across his life. Uh, And even though they're gone, it's one final glimpse of them and memories of them. It's wonderful. Well, there you go. Anyone who doesn't love that movie, I mean, you just say they're a cynic and just like really sad, you know, like. uh... (sighs) Yeah. It's definitely his most boring movie. (laughs) I mean, that's only because he makes nothing but bangers. Oh, that's there is something to that argument. I'll give you that. (laughs) Okay, uh, let's move on to Philip's email. Philip, who has been on our show before, um, he's talking about our last laughs episode. So he mentions a few laughs, laugh moments. So the first one he says is he always says, Strange Love might be the best film to end with somebody getting out of a wheelchair, but Greedy isn't the second. It's actually Naked Gun. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> or OJ Simpson, because because OJ Simpson just keeps getting hurt throughout that entire movie. Um <laughs> yeah oj hits the rail and catapults out the wheelchair for one more major injury and and he mentions that while some might balk at seeing oj in a movie like this uh he'd argue that it's saved by the fact that he's continuously continuously punished and beaten which yeah that that's kind of like a fortuitous <laughs> aspect of the movie now that we know what we know about him indeed uh and it's a great bit and a really good call in terms of movies that end with someone rising from a wheelchair even that's right. when the context is a little different <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was good he says his other big moment last laugh moment is from wet hot american summer so he says it's a post-credit scene calling back to earlier in the movie where the camp counselors 
uh, all promise to meet up 10 years later. And then they do recreating some of the dialogue. He says the movie's very weird, but if you like the vibe, then more is more. And this was more. I'm not, I've, I think I've seen Wet Hot American Summer, but I'm not that well versed in it. I've never seen it. You've never seen it? Well, no. sorry, sorry, Philip, we can't speak much to that. I'd like to, though, because it's got kind of, I don't know how I'll react to it, but it's definitely got like a rather passionate online following. Mm-hmm. It does, um, which so. is weird because I never even heard of it when it came out, like didn't even cross my attention at all. No, but, it seemed like it was like, like not just a cult movie, but specifically like Groundswell online. Yeah, um, to, to the point where they actually the... made a reunion movie on it. I imagine it was also one of the first examples of that, too, because the film came out in like 2000, did it not? 2003, I think. Oh, it's a little later than I Oh, maybe that. I don't know. I'm just guessing. I don't really know. Okay. Yeah, around that just... time. Yeah. Around that time. Okay. 2000 seems way too late because that's like right around American Pie. And now we got to look it up. <laughs> I mean, American Pie is 99. It can't be that hard to make a wet, hot American summer. Can't be that time consuming, I should say. 2001. There we go. Okay. 2001. Split the sense. difference. That's right. Uh, and then he's got another moment here. He says he's in the camp of folk who don't like Scott Pilgrim. And he says, and I'll take any opportunity to say so. Like this one. It's a frustrating movie for me because there's so much objectively good work being done, but it's in service of very little. The movie making is very clever, but the movie itself thinks it's super clever. So there you go. He's also not a Scott Pilgrim fan. Yeah, I, I like the way he puts that where it's like it's clever, but there's nothing else. I think to me, the film might have actually been an important lesson in that kind of thing where it's like, oh, a film can be like well crafted in a technical way and be really clever in its filmmaking and still not be that good. Um which I is can kind see of how it would experience. Yeah, I can see how it would be irritating to people for sure. Mm-hmm. I would like to revisit it because I haven't seen it since it came out. And uh, who knows? Yeah, I caught a little bit on TV. I think the film's existence is justified by that line where Michael Sarah says, bread makes you fat. <laughs> That's. <laughs> I think it's worth the whole movie's worth it just for that. That's fair. Yeah. Well, thank you, Philip. Um. Yeah, so that was from our last, last episode. I'd go on to our Spotify, but we're having problems with that right now. So if you left a message on Spotify, we will get to it eventually. And also there's a poll out there. I did put a poll from our vacations episode of which of the places that we talked about would you want to go on vacation? So (laughs) make sure you check out that poll. I, oh God, I'm trying to remember what really depressing stuff I picked and thinking, is anyone going to choose those movies? Well, you had the Swiss Alps with the... the man who knew too much. Right, right. That's a good vacation. It was in the context of your child being kidnapped by an international cabal of assassins, but yeah, the skiing's nice. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. Was there anything you want to throw out there, Dan? Before we wrap um, up? The next video is on the way, but it's not done yet. So why don't you just watch more of Kubrick's books? I know you haven't finished it yet, and it's fine. I get it. It's really long. So just watch a couple more sections, and uh, who knows? Maybe by the time you're done those, the next video will be out. I did finish it. I finished it this weekend. Oh, nice. I made it through. It was awesome. Thank you. Yeah, definitely check it out. But it is nice that you can you can chunk it, right? Like you can go movie by movie, book by book. So 
yeah yeah Check but that's one out, of the reasons too the fact that youtube makes it so easy to have like the timestamps and to even in the timeline segment it it was like okay like i don't need to do it in multiple videos i can let the viewer make their own videos of it in a sense right. yeah that was, um, that was nice so, yeah excellent all right um well, thanks for listening, everybody. My name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And we want to know, audience, what will you do about it? Good night. <laughs> <laughs>